um, called Constructing, um, sorry, called uh, Constructing Faith to Last. Today we're going to talk about living in a construction zone. So um, we have been kind of using this metaphor of like building a house as being the same as building your faith. And uh, today we'll wrap it up by talking about just how we can continue to build our faith and how we can stay um, near to God and faithful as it seems like the world changes around us maybe at a very fast pace. So our passage today is from John 20, verses 24 through 29. Oops. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, was uh, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for choosing as your disciples people we can relate to, like Thomas, who doesn't get it. God, I ask that you would draw near to us, and that you would meet us here, and that you would build our faith, and um, that you would reveal yourself to us with increasing measure, that we might know you, and that we might become like you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this passage makes me feel just a little bit better. <laughs> Thomas, Doubting Thomas, I find to be like a big encouragement in the Bible um, because this guy's got like no excuse, right? He's been following Jesus around for like years and he's seen the most incredible miracles. And then when he hears that Jesus has risen from the dead from his friends, the other disciples, he says, nope, I'm not buying it. I don't believe that at all, which seems a little bit remarkable from like our outside, like after the fact um, perspective, right? That Thomas could doubt at this point. But I think that he really helps to show us that doubt is just a part of the journey. Like this is a part of following Jesus, a part of believing in God, is that in order to have faith, there are going to be times when we feel um, periods of doubt. In uh, Matthew, verse 28, 16 to 18, or sorry, just 16 and 17, um, we see another story. Like after, so Jesus is risen from the dead again, and the, the uh, uh, not again, like this is another story that happened after Jesus is risen from the dead. When the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Some doubted. Everyone doubts. If these guys can doubt in these circumstances, I think that it would be unreasonable for us to expect never to have a time of doubt um, in our faith. We have to keep constructing our faith. Faith building is an ongoing activity. And building our faith is an endeavor that uh, will take a lifetime. Something that um, another vineyard pastor, Adam Russell, who actually wrote one of the songs we sang this morning, um, Adam Russell said, said it this way, and I really appreciate it. He said, your eight-year-old faith won't work when you're 18 or when you're 38 or when you're 68. And I find that so helpful. You know, one of the first ways that I got involved as a volunteer at the Vineyard, it's 
so many years ago in like the like mid-2000s, um, was in kids' ministry. And I didn't have kids myself, but I did have like a lot of experience being a kid in kids' ministry. And oh, you guys, I was going to fix this. I was going to make kids' ministry so cool. And we were going to talk about all these like deep and nuanced things. You know, we weren't just going to like sing the song about building your house on the rock. Sure, 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 that's important. But I wanted to talk to these kids about the now and the not yet and the kingdom and, and how sometimes we experience God and sometimes we don't. And God hides himself, you know, so that we can have faith because if he revealed himself perfectly, we, would, we, we wouldn't have any choice. We'd just be a bunch of like robots who couldn't choose not to love him. So it, wouldn't, it would be meaningless that we loved him. And I wanted, to, um, I wanted to talk to them about the broken world and how the world is broken, the, the role that humans played and the role of the devil and I really wanted to equip them with a faith that was going to take them through their teenage and college years because I recently had watched a lot of my friends in college go through a period of deconstruction and some of them walked away from faith and on my watch these kids they were going to get it and it failed spectacularly <laughs> spectacularly um, because they had no idea what I was saying. I mean, like, I was young and energetic, and we played a lot of games, and I, so I think, like, they liked me. Like, they're nice kids. We've always had such nice kids at our church. <sighs> but, um, but I, it, I, like, it just didn't connect. And after a few, like, very painstaking, like, awesome kids' ministry lessons full of nuance, ready to take on every question that you're going to hit in high school, just completely falling flat, I found myself returning to the songs about a wise man builds his house upon the rock, you know, and just talking about Jesus' love and using some of those, like, lamb shepherd metaphors, like, that's something that, like, especially little kids, like, really get, you get fluffy lambs and bring in stuffed animals and stuff, like, that seems to work really well, but, um, but I had to let go of having this, like, planned presentation of, like, I, I wanted to give these kids a faith that lasted, and so I was trying to give them like a teenager faith or a, or a college faith or a grown-up faith, a 23-year-old faith, because I was 23, you know. And the thing that I learned, and it took a lot of time of reflection and some uh, intervention from my mentor, Tim, um, was that the reason that my 23-year-old faith was strong was because my 6-year-old faith was strong, and it was appropriate for a 6-year-old. Um, at 6, I didn't have big questions about the problem of evil. And so uh, at six, uh, I didn't need somebody to get that sorted out for me. That became a really big deal in college, though. Why did bad things happen, you know? And, um, and it was something that I was really ready to sink my teeth into because I had memory verses from my childhood stored up. I had um, an experience of a very loving church. I went to a small Pentecostal church for a lot, a lot of my growing up time. And sometimes, uh, sometimes, like, small Pentecostal church is weird, but man, they really cared about me, you know, and they never left their guitars on while the preacher was preaching. <laughs> um, no, so it was just the sort of thing where like, you know, having a faith that is appropriate to the age that you're at is something that matters, and this is true even as adults. I think sometimes, you know, we kind of say like adulthood, 21, like that's it, you've arrived, you know, and um, I certainly thought that when I was in my, my early 20s, and now that I'm in my late 30s, I know that you don't really become an adult until your late 30s, and then you've arrived, and you can, like, chuckle at the young 20-somethings, you know, with, like, your real grown-up friends. I'm sure that the 58-year-old is not giggling at me. Like, we are the same, right? 
But adulthood is weird because we don't hit the same milestones at the same time, right? Like the death of a loved one, a parent or a spouse, comes at different times once you get into adulthood. Like we're not all freshmen in high school at the same time, but instead a job loss will affect one person and another person might go their whole adult life without having um, that kind of like insecurity job-wise. Or money problems might really strike somebody young or they might have, have carried in money problems from like when they were a child and they work really hard to get over them and somebody else maybe is just blithely wandering down the path of life and things seem to be working out okay for them. Personal illness, um, experiencing sickness, experiencing um, oppression like racism or sexism or some kind of bigotry that you know through no fault of your own and no control of your own somebody else is treating you unfairly like these things happen to us at different times in our adulthood and so I do think that when we talk about our grown-up faith you know we have to keep building according to the circumstances that we go through in our lives and it's so important that we like meet that struggle and um, when we experience these kinds of doubts because um, other people are going to have those kinds of struggles and we'll be able to help them. And we'll also be able to be helped by others who have had those kinds of struggles. Like Thomas, Jesus meets us where we are. And I really love that Jesus says to Thomas, like, stop doubting and believe. You know, like, he's very clear about, like, here's what to do. But he doesn't say, oh, I'm not going to let you touch my hands. If you don't believe it, then if you don't know. You know, like, Jesus doesn't hold back. Like, he meets Thomas right there, but then he also encourages him to grow. And I think that's something so critical for us to remember when we go through periods of doubt or when things are difficult. Jesus will meet us where we are. But he doesn't want us just to stay right there. He wants us to grow through that process. Sometimes the only way out is through when it comes to difficult times and the doubts that come in with those times. Sometimes we struggle with doubt because we become aware of a social issue that the church has handled poorly. And I feel like that's going on a lot like lately, right? Um, I can definitely fall into that, um, that kind of trap of saying like, oh, like, Times are more confusing now than they've ever been for anyone in the history of the world ever. Like, this is the most complex, most confusing time. And I try to build my case, you know, by saying social media is so new. My mom didn't have to deal with this. And certainly the, the serfs in the feudal Europe didn't have Twitter, so their life was easier <laughs> Their life was easy. Their non-air-conditioned, you know, like no germ theory, people don't wash their hands, life was way simpler than mine. Um, but we do live in confusing times. So when I get to feeling sorry, about, sorry for myself about this, like I do find it's helpful to take some time. Like this is where I like pull out those like the history lessons that I probably didn't pay attention to, to be honest, as, um, as a teenager or as a college student or just like in general. Um, one book that's really helped me lately in our current polarized times. And, um, and when I say really helped me, I mean like the first eight pages have been very helpful. Um, this book's really dense. <laughs> I bought it, <laughs> it's by historian Mark Knoll, and, and good for Mark, he's a smart guy. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm really helped by like, my husband is also a smart guy, like there are some times when like I'm the one like who shines, like I'll organize the thing or I'll get the taxes done. But I confess, I, I was like, man, I'm really struggling with this book, Josh. And he said, you know, <laughs> so much of a degree in religious studies, which he has and I don't, he said so much of that is just like learning how to get through stuff like this. <laughs> because sometimes it does get like just a little, 
a little pretentious, a little convoluted, like this is like tricky, you know. And so, um, so he also, he's read much more of this than I have and we've discussed it, so I'm gonna count that. It's like an audio book, you know, and like a service that like dumbs it down for those of us who are a little like, I'm a numbers person and not a, not of this. Anyway, but um, the Civil War is the theological crisis. That's the name of the book. And the beginning really takes a lot of time to talk about, uh, as you might imagine, in the North and in the South, churches, before, right before the Civil War, churches were preaching about slavery. And they would both be Christian churches, and they would have the same Bible, and they would draw shockingly different conclusions about the morality of slavery, right? So in the North, slavery is a social ill, Obviously, this is absolutely not in line with what with God's plan for the world. And in the South, they would say, and, and like I, I was shocked to read it because like I haven't actually heard these arguments because I've never lived through a time when anyone was making the argument that slavery was okay. But they would make arguments like slavery is something that God gave to white people to guide and direct the other people in the land. Like, like you just want to vomit in your mouth. Is so so obvious to us. But, um, but this was really stuff people were preaching, like, back in the day. And I think when I look back on, like, North versus South and uh, slavery and abolitionists, like, there's a clear good guy there, right, and a clear villain. Like, the North are the good guys, and slavery was abolished. Obviously, slavery is horrible, and praise the Lord that he was able to, like, bring our country out of the, those evil days. Um, but you do notice that, like, some of the Northerners, like, their abolitionism maybe isn't quite so based on like Jesus says people shouldn't be slaves and a little more like there's like some like economic things going on there too like the north was tired of competing with these southern businesses that had free labor and they didn't have free labor so their solution was oh slavery is real bad we should get let's straight out let's get rid of that you know like it wasn't just like this totally altruistic pure of heart kind of a thing going on like both sides kind of had a this is what i'm used to so this is what it should be. And Mark Knoll makes the argument when he looks at these sermons that these, pre these preachers aren't pulling so much from the Bible scripturally as their sermons are just relying on like what's the attitude of the day? Like what does everybody agree with? They say like, of course it's this, obviously that, we've already sorted this out, we know, we know, we feel, we feel. And like not doing good exegesis. Exegesis being interpreting the Bible correctly, pulling out of the Bible the meaning that's inside of it, right? So um, it's helpful for me to think about this because I feel like these days we do have issues where you've got Christians on both sides coming to very different conclusions about what's the right thing to do and what's the wrong thing to do. And we all use the same Bible. And so I think one of the critical things that we should hold on to as we're constructing, deconstructing, reconstructing our faith is that we need to use the whole Bible when we construct our faith. We have to use the whole thing. Um, when I was going through Vineyard Leadership Institute um, after college, and Josh and I knew we were called to be pastors, and we were really into the vineyard, and so we took a lot of classes of, from some like really phenomenal theologians that we would normally never have access to. This was like before streaming. Let me talk to my young people. We got DVDs in the mail, and we put them into a machine, and it showed up on our television. It was like plugged in, like there was no internet involved. And um, <laughs> that's, that's how old I am. And, uh, and, and as we went through these, one of the things that was like a recurring theme all the time was all meaning is context dependent. We have to have the larger context of what's going on in the Bible to understand um, what it is that we're supposed to do. 
So to drive this point home, I want to rely on one of my favorite Facebook community groups ever. And I just want to invite you to playfully come with me into this. Um, I'm a little nervous that I will be misunderstood. So let's be sure. Um, we're going to kind of joke around. We're going to have some fun. There's a little nuance here. Um, but before I go any further, I'm just going to say I, I'm not anti-men. I like men. I'm married to one. He's my favorite. And um, like pro-man, okay? Hooray for men. So there's this guy on Facebook who has a page called The Man Who Has It All. And he turns around the script on things that we say about women that kind of fly under the radar, no problem at all. And then he changes the, the language and he says them about men. And it does like kind of strike you as like, oh, why would we ever say that, you know? So like one example <laughs> would be, um, uh, is like in quotation marks, a guy is saying, don't call me a male PhD. I'm just a PhD, says Brian, bringing his gender into everything as usual. Which like is funny, right? Because we don't actually call anybody a male PhD, but if a woman has a doctorate, she may be referred to as a female PhD. Does that make sense? So like, it's not saying men are bad or PhD, men with PhDs are bad, um, but it's just saying like, oh, there's a way that we treat women a little differently and we can really highlight that and see that when we treat men that way. So like, that's just, it's just, it's just like show, it's about revealing like things that we take for granted. Okay, so this came up, this post came up. Men as leaders and teachers in the church. What do you think? Which I think is really funny, <laughs> right? Because like, Nobody's ever asked that question since the dawn of time. Have we asked that question about women? Absolutely. We have absolutely asked that question. There are churches that say no. There are churches that say yes. Uh, I'm up here, so guess where you're at? And uh, <laughs> I don't often preach about like why it's okay for women to preach because I find that if a person doesn't think a woman should preach, then me preaching to them about why I, I can preach maybe doesn't like land, you know? <laughs> So, uh, so, so usually I leave like the complementarian, egalitarian stuff to Josh because, you know, everybody will agree, well, surely he's not, you know, well, anyway, <laughs> he can make this argument. So anyway, so this comes up and I just have a giggle. And what's really great about this Facebook page is then like all these people will join in, men and women alike, and they'll like play the game, like they'll play along with it. You know what I mean? So like, um, I think one of them was like, what's the male word for a lioness? And somebody joins in and is like, oh, well, you have to diminish the word lioness to simply lion because, you know, the women hunt and the men just sit around so it's smaller and less. Like, that's a new idea. Like, that's like, oh, that's a really interesting way of thinking about how we use language, gendered language. Okay, so anyway, so this one comes up and this wonderful woman who I love so much, I never met her, I never will, but she's my favorite. She gives us an answer with some really terrible exegesis. So again, I just want to remind everybody, what I'm about to read is bad exegesis. The point is not, this is what I think. The point is, here's bad exegesis against men, therefore, let us not use bad exegesis against women, okay? So we all love men here. This is a very safe space for men. We're cheering you guys on. Okay, so she says, <laughs> she says this in response to this question. What do you think, men as leaders? She says, the Bible clearly states in Jeremiah 10, 14, and this is true, you can look it up on your phone if you'd like to, every man is stupid, devoid of knowledge. So how can they lead? <laughs> it also says in 1 Timothy 3, 4, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. So the Bible is very clear that his place is in the home, managing household tasks, 
and caring for children. Isn't that responsibility enough? How could he possibly have time to leave the church? No, he does these things to support his wife to leave because as the Bible says in Proverbs 31, 6, she speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. <laughs> the problem with Christian men today is they forget biblical instruction like Genesis 2, 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife. All this craving power and leadership is sinful. It's a result of the lack of cleaving. It's not the modern way I know, but the church is supposed to shun the worldly way of doing things. The Bible is so clear, men need to stay home, cleave to their wives, control their children, look after the house. That's how they were designed. <laughs> and it's just like, I just, I feel seen, you know, like, because there, there are things, and, and less, increasingly less, I think women are doing really well in the world. I'm certainly doing really well as a woman in the world, I feel like. Um, but, you know, you can find old stuff where, like, women are, is like, oh, women were designed just to have babies and they should stay home and they shouldn't work and stuff, which, like, I like my job. I'm good at it. Come on. So I think this, like, is such a great example of when we take a little piece of the Bible, we can get it to say whatever we want, right? We can get it to say men should stay at home with their babies. We can get it to say women should stay at home with their babies. Like, if you use poor exegesis, you can get the Bible to say anything. So if we start from a place like what was happening before the Civil War for the North and Northern and Southern churches, if you start from a place of this is what feels right, let me go get some evidence from the Bible to prove I'm right, then we're not going to get closer to Jesus that way. We're going to get closer to our cultural and social ties. We're going to reinforce the thinking that we, we're going to confirm the biases that we already have. So we've got to use the whole Bible. We also need to be a part of a community that uses the whole Bible to construct our faith. And diversity here is critical. You know, so often I think there have been ills uh, perpetrated by the church and just by other groups like companies, corporations, you know, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, whoever, like little groups and big groups and families, whatever, where you just have a, everyone is like kind of on autopilot and going one way because they've all had the same background, the same upbringing. If they've had trauma, it's all been the same kind and the, none of, the, of, of a different kind. And so there are blind spots that we're not aware of. And so things that we just like kind of assume, assumptions that we have, just because like we're all really alike. And so it's so important to have friends and a community and to listen to voices of people who have had a different lived experience than our own um, so that we can catch those blind spots and update our thinking and deconstruct the parts of our faith that are just an assumption because like I'm white and middle class and so that seemed obvious to me. But when somebody brings up a different point of view, oh yeah, I need to like take a step back and be willing to let go of whatever I've constructed in the house that's a problem, deconstruct that, and, uh, and rebuild it. So when I was in college, I took a class called um, Literature by and About Women Outside of the West, which was like definitely the most progressive class I ever took. It was not at Missouri State. I spent a semester in Colorado. It was way too progressive for Missouri State when I was at Missouri State in 2003. I don't actually know how progressive Missouri State is. Or isn't. But, um, but it, wasn't like a, it wasn't like a Missouri Republican town kind of a class, you know, like it was like, oh no, my child has gone off to college and now they're, you know, they they're, they're <laughs> have all these crazy ideas about the world kind of a class. It was a great class. Um, it was very irritating for my parents because I had all these new ideas. And one of them was, um, we took a look at the book, Jane Eyre. There's... Um, in, in the book Jane Eyre, I don't know if you know it, like, so this is like, like British, British, British. So you've got the Lord, Rochester, and Jane Eyre is like a governess or something, and um, they fall in love, and 
They want to get married, but the big twist is that he's already married. <gasps> and his wife is a crazy Caribbean woman who he's locked in the attic. And I'm going to spoil it for you. The book is old if you haven't read it yet. Sorry. Uh, she burns down the house, and Rochester goes blind, and then Jane Eyre and Rochester live happily ever after anyway. Um, so then there's this woman, this author, named Jean Rice, and she's from uh, the Caribbean. She's from... I'm going to get it wrong. I should have looked it up. Okay, she's from a Caribbean island. Urgh, and see, this is me being bad. Sorry, Jean Rice. Jean Rice. Um, so she reads this, and she's not white middle class descendant of Brits, ready to just like watch Downton Abbey for the rest of her life. And she reads racism. She says, why is the Caribbean woman crazy? Always with the crazy. We're not crazy. And so she writes the book. She kind of rewrites it um, from the perspective of the wife. And so she tells the story of Rochester, um, you know, colonizing in the West Indies and taking her back and marrying, treating her terribly unfairly and just like how impossible her life is. It's really interesting. I read it once. I can never read it again. It's so hard to read. It's like three reading levels above my reading level. It's like, I believe, brilliantly done, but I really struggled through this like very high fiber book with these like really big ideas. Um, but the thing that I thought was so fascinating about it is watching my classmates around me, because I hadn't really gotten attached to Jane Eyre when I was younger. Um, so I came into the class kind of like, oh, yeah. So like, Jane Eyre's a story about a couple of bigots falling in love with each other. That's so interesting. I've never thought about that before. But the girl sitting next to me in like a very like tearful, I'm about to fall apart, like quavering voice, embarrassing moment, says, this is not my Rochester and my Jane Eyre. Like, nice book at all, but these aren't my people. My people are fine. And she got up and she walked out of class, which my professor really took in stride. And she said, ah, oh, look how difficult it is to learn something new. And just like moved on, you know? But like, it like hurt her, this girl in my class. Like, her heart was broken at the thought of these people that she had loved and yearned and he goes blind and she stays with him and nurses him to health. You know, like she has like soared up into the air and crashed down into the depths with these people and for them to be racists was really difficult for her. So I think that brings us to just this question of identity, which is what are we, where are we getting our sense of identity from? And how can we keep our identity only based on Jesus and not get it woven into or stitched up against with something that was never meant to be our identity in the first place. Rochester and Jane, it's a great story, sure, but should it break our hearts if we find out something devastating about them? Or should we be able to say, wow, like really put ourselves in the place of the person that maybe we never saw the whole time we were reading the book, this, the crazy Caribbean wife upstairs who I guess is the villain, but Hmm, I've read White Sargassi, so I know she's actually really cool. Um, we've, got to, we've got to rely on Jesus to protect our identity. We've got to listen to other voices. We've got to make sure that the, the house that we're constructing, it's built on a rock, right? Not shifting sand. And that shifting sand, I think when I was six and I was in kids' ministry, the shifting sand was like, oh, don't just try to be popular, you know, or... Um, uh, don't just, you know, like, it's, it's, it's not all about, like, money and stuff. Like, we have to help the poor, and, like, it's not about status. Like, they're trying to help six-year-olds think through, like, what might pull you away from Jesus, and how can you stay close to Jesus? But I think as I am, you know, 
38, totally legitimate grown-up now, um, I feel like those, like the shifting sand of our identity, it comes in the form of so many other things. And some of them are these like pressing social issues of the day. I'm so excited about this small group where we're going to talk about some of this stuff. Um, because I think, uh, particularly like Christian sexual ethics, I think this is like really deserves a let's look at the whole Bible, let's encourage each other to look at the whole Bible, and let's listen to some a diversity of voices so that we can understand what's going on and have some compassion. I was recently talking to a friend of mine. She's going to kind of sound like the bad guy in this story, but she's actually a really wonderful person. I love her very much. I was talking to my friend, a friend of mine. This was like the last Columbus Day. And you know, everybody's kind of getting mad on Columbus Day. Like, everybody's like being like, Columbus was a jerk, you know, kind of Columbus Day. And I am here for it. Like, I'm like, yeah, bad guy, Columbus. Let's, let's celebrate that other guy who, you know, like, I don't know. There's another guy that everybody wants to celebrate, and I'm, I like him. So maybe I could have looked up his name before the sermon. I'm sorry, guys. Um, so anyway, so we're talking about Christopher Columbus, and she's got some story about, um, I'm like, Christopher Columbus is bad. And she's like, ah. I don't think he was so bad. I think maybe he was a little misunderstood. You know, one time, like, 39 of his men got eaten by cannibals in the New World. And so then, like, he killed those people, but shouldn't he have? They ate his men. Have you heard this story? And I said, no, I have not heard this story. I'll go Google it. So I go Google it, and I'm trying to be fair to my friend, because, like, as far as we are relative to each other, like, I'm definitely more on the liberal side. She's definitely more on the conservative side. I want to give us a fair shake, right? So I'm trying to find, like, a conservative, you know, kind of story or primary sources, cannibals, and, like, what's going on? And I can't even share with you what I found, because it turns out Christopher Columbus is so much worse than I thought he was. So bad. So bad. Nobody got eaten by cannibals. <laughs> like... Just, he made that up to justify himself oh, so bad. And, um, the treatment of women, mm, so bad, so bad. Um, and, um, and I decided not to return to my friend with my findings <laughs> because I didn't want to justify it for fighting's sake. But what I do find so interesting, she's having the same Jane Eyre experience, right? She's like, no, Columbus was good. Somehow she has woven into her identity Columbus is like him being a good guy, him being worthy of celebration, him deserving to have cities named after him and all this country. Like she's like, that's like a part of her and she doesn't want to deconstruct that. She doesn't want to give that up. So she's going to go find and malign the good people of non-cannibals of, of the Caribbean because she, she just, she's like, it's like, it's like, She's circling the wagons, and for some reason, Columbus is, like, on the inside of the wagons. I'm not saying I don't circle my wagons, but, like, I don't put any historical figures other than Jesus in this wagon. Like, they're disappointing enough, right? Like, they can go out there. We're going to learn new things. History is being written all the time. Isn't that so interesting? Because of, like, the dynamics of who's powerful and who controls the narrative and who's telling the story. And so I think, like, we have to, we have to make sure that as we're constructing our house, the foundation, it's, it's Jesus and it's just Jesus, and it's not other stuff. Because the other stuff, when we have to start defending people who aren't Jesus, we start compromising ourselves. And when we do that, we start compromising the church, and we start like ruining it for other people. And I don't want us to ruin it. I want us to be doing the, thing, the work that Jesus has called us to do. So we've got to rely on Jesus to protect our identity. Colossians chapter 3, and I'm going to close with this. Colossians chapter 3 Verses um, 1 through 3, I actually, uh, yeah, verses 1 through 3. So since then, this is Paul talking, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not earthly things, 
For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When I've heard this sermon or this passage preached before, I've understood hidden to mean protected, right? Like the baby bird under mommy's wing, like your life is safe in Christ. But I came across this quote by um, a theologian. Uh, he's still alive, actually. He's pretty old. And he was like born in the 40s, 50s, 30s. He was born in the 30s, so he's still kicking good for him. Um, A.T. Lincoln. And I can't tell exactly which denomination he's with. He went to a Presbyterian seminary. His mentor is an Anglican guy. But he says this interesting thing about this passage. He says, By no means everything about Christian living is apparent, not only for outsiders, for whom much of it appears foolish, but also to Christians themselves. And just at that moment, I'm just like, huh, yeah, that's kind of ringing true. I don't know. (laughs) For whom, Christians themselves, for whom there remains mystery and much questioning until the final revelation. Its hiddenness necessitates that Christians live by faith and not by sight, and therefore without all the answers to the meaning of many events in their lives. We have to live by faith, not by sight, without the answers to the meaning of many events in our lives. Now, this is a quote by a theologian. This isn't the gospel truth. This isn't in the Bible. But I just thought that was such an interesting perspective on what it means to have our lives hidden in Christ. Like, some of our lives are hidden even from us. And so we have to be careful about making allegiances to Jane Eyre or Christopher Columbus or whoever, maybe even like mega church leaders who disappoint us and fall from grace, or your favorite actor or actress who it turns out something about, or, or like any politicians, right? Or like business leaders, like corruption abounds. And it's like even whose side I'm on in this present world is not totally clear to me. I just want to be on Jesus' side. And maybe I can't always know exactly who else is also on Jesus' side or how well they're doing with that. And so as we're talking about deconstructing, constructing faith, reconstructing, continuing to construct over the course of our whole lives, it's just so critical that Jesus is the one that we're like in it with him and everybody else is kind of optional, you know? Not like serving others is optional. Obviously, we serve others. But like our allegiance to Jesus, that's the pillar. That's the thing that's critical. That's where we build our house. And the rest of this stuff, it might be messy and confusing. We might have to change our minds sometimes. Um, Or we might have to be seen as like the bad guy in a society that says the way that you are pursuing is, uh, that's unethical. That's like you guys are in like a cult. That's like way too high of a standard. Nobody could ever live up to that standard. It's maybe even bad or dangerous or something. Um, We have to hold on to Jesus so that we aren't just tossed to and fro by the changing world around us, but so that we can be firm in our faith and also so that we can continue to give from a place of love and generosity because everyone around us is getting tossed around too. And Jesus is our safe harbor in all of this, and he means for us to offer a safe harbor to others as well. So would you stand? Phil's going to come up and play another song. We'll have a chance to pray for each other today. Um, we're talking about like big ideas, and I love you all for like, being here for it and laughing at my jokes. Please don't go post on Facebook, Karagaki hates men. <laughs> um,
But I think as we close today, I just think there's an invitation from God to say, um, to, say to God, in allegiance to you, Jesus, I want to be willing to change my mind. Help me. Help me change my mind. Help me be willing to change my mind.